Hi, I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, the host of Alma Am I Racist, the podcast. And I have met someone who has turned out to be kind of a soul sister and a friend. And in talking to her, I realized she told me she had written a book. So there was nothing to do except for to buy the book. And it's called Can We Talk? Will I Listen? And I'm going to hold it up so you can see it. A Journey Towards the Healing Power of Dialogue. And let me tell you just a little bit about Elka. Elka Geising is a descendant of parents who were swept up in the Nazi regime. She's from Germany originally and lives now in South Africa. So having lived in South Africa, I left about three years ago. She and I had lots to talk about. Uh, of our experiences with racism there. But the very interesting thing is Elka dives into uh, the confluence of what it was like to be a descendant of Nazis, so the oppressor, so to speak, and then coming to South Africa and what that felt like being a white person on the heels of apartheid. So I am delighted to introduce to you Elka Geising, and I'm so glad to have you with us today, Elka. All right. Thank you very much, Lisa. I'm so very uh, uh, pleased to be here and and, uh, really very happy for your invitation to have a chance to be in dialogue with each other. Oh, well, it is just my pleasure that you took time to do this. And this is among your many ventures. You've done a lot of things in your life and you made a short film. And that was when I first realized, oh, wow, we're we are definitely on the same page. And I know it's probably difficult in kind of going back as we prepared for this, for you to look at what it was like in your childhood. So will you tell me about, in your book, you describe being a young teen, about 13, and you learned about the Holocaust and tried to talk to your parents. Would you say a little bit about what that experience was like? Yeah. Yeah, you know, a traumatic memory doesn't go away. And I realize uh, that it's very present at the moment. So uh, sharing about it is um, part of the journey, I think, to be in dialogue with each other and also others who, who seek to, to come together in our humanness. I watched my family fall apart at a very early time, 11, 12, 13. And uh, then uh, at that time, I uh, we had... Uh, compulsory for every every child by then, classes on the Holocaust. And it was, a, as it still is today, a very statistical account of, of what happened. I think my destiny really was that two things, that I had a teacher who could see that I was captivated, that I was disturbed, and that I, I call myself, in a sense, a seer of pain because of all the early experiences. I didn't look away. And she saw that and she didn't look away either. So the two of us talked and she gave me videos, horrible videos of, of the, the killings and the, the horrible, horrible cruel treatment um, of Jewish people and, and books to read. And, and so I did. And at the same time, I, I experienced, as I said, my family falling apart, meaning my father was a, an active, both of them were active, enthusiastic Nazis that participated, my father in um, special commandos, and my mother in, in, in an administrative role 
or a, a major area leader where she would write letters about deportations and, um, and whatever else was, was done at the time. So um, I've researched quite a bit later on, but at that time at 13, the overlap of the, the awareness of this incredible cruelty towards other human beings being replayed in my home. My father became very violent. Um, he succumbed to alcohol and, and pathology of, of many kinds, and it was dangerous. And my mother um, couldn't hold against it. She, she just cried. And so for me, and I have a brother, for us, it became a very unsafe world. It was terrifying, and it filled me with shame because there wasn't anyone to turn to. I, I went to family members, to my parents. Did you do this? Can we talk about this? I mean, I used different words as a child, but essentially, did you do this? And um, there was anger, a rejection, uh, just, you know, this angry reaction when someone doesn't want to deal with a shameful subject. So essentially, all this, this horrible experience of pain, I could not, could not find any place to work that through with anyone. Uh, with a teacher to some degree. So I internalized it. It went inside. And uh, yeah, there's more to say to that. Maybe I, I leave it at this and you ask me more questions. Do you feel like the not being able to talk about it openly was part of the wounding? Well, today I know that having the opportunity to... Uh, be in a safe and a trusting environment uh, where I, I trust that I will be heard and, and then speak about the, the shame and the, the, the wounding, a yeah, wounded heart. I, and, and I did something more. I split. I, I locked all of this inside, but I thoroughly imprisoned my emotions. And, of course, they came out um, indirectly uh, later in a way of, being extremely selective, who I would relate to socially, being uh, performing to, to external standards, but not, not sharing feelings. And, uh, and I started making inner movies, lots of them. I, I'd be competition to Netflix today with all the stuff I, I created internally. But I've, I've conducted dialogue here uh, with young people, and, and that's what my, started me to write this book. Can we talk? Will I listen? So in these dialogue sessions, um, I speak about the family experience. I speak about my emotions. I speak about guilt, the shame, the hate, the, the split view I'd had of my parents, that on the one side, they were loving parents for the, at least the first few years. And they were also evil, uh, complicit in, in, uh, in murder and destruction and dehumanization. And in these dialogue meetings here, then with young ones, what, what happens so often is that after they've seen my raw emotions and my honesty about it, my vulnerability, they felt comfortable to also talk. And with that, uh, they belonged uh, and, and felt validated that they, they were not crazy in their feelings or they didn't have to lock it up as much. It's been a very powerful experience on this dialogue work. And I want to say, too, you went to the Holocaust Center in Cape Town, South Africa, when you moved to South Africa. You've lived all over the world. And at what point in South Africa did you realize 
oh my goodness, this is happening here and no one is talking about apartheid. And having lived in South Africa, I can say, in my opinion, as an outsider, apartheid is gone legally, but psychically it still controls the country. And so when was your aha moment? This is no different. Yeah, I may, may want to go back a little bit, if that's all right. With oh, Robert. please, yes. So I, uh, in this, this very, very, in this prison home, Holocaust, and the overlap of uh, my mother in the end, when she died, she looked like a skeleton from the Holocaust. Um, and and I, I, I superimposed those images. There was, was one way out. I really was locked in and locked up both physically that we were in a small village, my, my whatever means we had our father drank it away, there was nothing um, other than a bus that would take me to high school about 10 miles away. And that was my, my, my one view through the prison window into the world, into freedom. There was one other aspect, and um, I understand today my, that my parents could not talk. They just could not touch the language. They were so buried in, it's not an excuse. It's right. not an excuse, you know, and it's not an excuse here either. But my mother gave me books about um, social activists who were uh, uh, Black, uh, Jewish, uh, different faiths, different countries, and they stood and they spoke with a fearless heart for um, human rights for equality, and that always stayed in me as as an um, a vision for life. Always a bit larger than me, but I tried to get close to it. So once I had finished high school, I got into university, and that was my my way out. Um, and I was completely focused on this external accomplishment. Still locked locked up my emotion. Of course, know, yes. Lucky yes. to be pulled in by people into their groups of friends. I was awkward. I performed. I became an entertainer. I was funny. I used my mind. Still, my emotions were locked up. Really, until therapy in New York, where I could deal with my family and where I could deal with this very damaged sense of self and self-worth. Um, my therapist helped me to to um, work through some of it, that it helped me to start my own business. But still, the, uh, <clears throat> the shame about my heritage was locked in. My, my therapist was Jewish. I had said to her, is it okay? I'm German, you know? And so we did touch on some of it. And I, I remember I was, I was seeking out uh, the people who were different because uh, I was attracted to that and I was trying to get away from the people like me. The white world, I call it, the German white world. And I fled Germany and that was part of uh, going around in the world to see in one way to be curious and adventurous and creative, always, always. Uh, creativity has been a, a way out uh, so often, like my father, violently destroyed our house. I took his boost bottles, took off the labels, painted them and tried to sell them as flower vases in the store. It's just a wow. How I turned the worst, I tried to turn the worst into a, a dignified and decent way of, of navigating the world. So South Africa, the German way of uh, 
trying to touch some humanity in, in themselves in society after the Nazi uh, and the Holocaust, Nazi regime and the Holocaust, was not to look at um, their, their, their deeds, their an inner reflection and dialogue. It wasn't. It was just the blanket of denial was pulled over society, and, and, and including my parents, my village, my, my relatives. But there was one uh, thing they pursued, and, and I got caught up in it too, and that is, you know, about the German economic miracle, um, if we achieve, and with a lot of money from, from America and elsewhere, then we must be good human beings. If we can buy a house and have a car and travel, then we must be good human beings and belong to the human race because that's what America shows us. Uh, you know, it's about owning and status and, and so forth. And, and for a while, I also got into that. Um, and my creativity made this a very joyful experience. I, I ran a business, built a business, ran a business internationally. But then I also came to a point of emptiness. And still, you know, I hadn't talked about um, my family, uh, my, my heritage. I, uh, and this was even after you had done the therapy work where you dived into this, you still weren't vocal or public in any way about it. Not to the degree that I could touch it here. I was vocal about uh, being German and the guilt towards Jewish people and the shame about uh, this this uh, very um, evil spirit that I inherited or, or pattern that I inherited from my parents, my society. I could talk to that in, in uh, therapy, but I could not look at racism, which I, as I do today, or as the power structure that wild world, white world has established everywhere. And it's uh, including uh, German, Jewish, uh, different faith. Um, this this uh, systematic oppression, exclusion, and denigrating of people because of their skin color into objects and commodities uh, that, that can be used at the white, white man's, white world's decision. As, as many different ways to, to phrase this. This came to me as, as, as an even deeper shock when I came to South Africa. I came with so much enthusiasm and a lot of naivete. And yes. in, innocence and naivete, they were mixed together. Because uh, I, I truly thought white people after liberation would do everything they could to make good on the horrors they had created. And, and that, that was wishful thinking. And I think underneath it, very deep, is, ah, can someone please relieve me a little bit by being a good example of a good human being as a white, as a German? It didn't happen. It still doesn't happen. It's not going to happen. And um, Not in our lifetimes, Elka. No, I don't no. think we will see that. No, I mean, my, my friend Pumla just, just said in conversation, it's not going to change. White arrogance has grown instead of the awareness of, of liberation. And for me, there is an explanation for that here. In Germany, after the Nazi regime and the Holocaust, the world was outraged and, and persecuting Germans relentlessly, rightly so. And there was no way to turn other than to, to look at those, those messages and the horror that was communicated and the pressure that was exerted. But here in South Africa, Lisa, 
nothing. There was a brief period where there were economic sanctions late in the 80s, and then there was an election, and nothing, nothing has ever been said in terms of global outreach about the continued visible racism, oppression, uh, exclusion, using of Black people, and the, the continued horrible inhuman treatment. Nobody in the world gives a damn. It's the white world that anywhere doesn't see Black people as valuable either. So white South Africans with impunity, they can do anything they want. And then they think of going to England or New Zealand or Australia or Germany or the US, and they are in their community, and they are. That's a dimension that doesn't get mentioned very often. Well, and what I found is people believe because the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there was the airing and there was a teeny beginning that stopped So when I tell people today, apartheid is alive and well in South Africa, they're shocked. And and I've talked to a number of Black people, and they're shocked. Everybody thinks this made some change, but I, I tried to explain. The whites have all of the economic power in that country. So whether the Black Africans have political power really doesn't matter. And the disparity in wages is so, so great. And the unwillingness, and I had white South African friends, and I would try to talk about racism, and it was it was not pleasant. And they could talk about racism in America or other countries, but they were like, in South Africa, we've dealt with it. And I said, but that's not what I see. It doesn't seem that way to me. What was your experience along those lines in talking to other whites? Well, you can't, uh, I mean, yeah, they're right. It's not present because white society has created a world of their own. There's, there are two worlds here. And it's a, com- a completely functioning society from the homes, well-guarded and fenced by private security, private school, restaurants, shops, the neighbors, the socializing, uh, the channelings for education, and then they go overseas. So there has not been an interest or a willingness to to listen to a, a Black life story and not in the, the two people a white family meets. Uh, that's the gardener and the housekeeper. Um, okay. And sometimes a Black person at work, but the as much as possible will be done to get them out of work or keep them in low, keep black people in lower position. So this this uh, systematic taken for granted, we dominate by our rules and our our economic system, our cultural system, our value system, our um, way of dressing, uh, the, the the movies we see, the restaurants we go to, the food we eat, everything. It's ubiquitous. That's the world. The other world. Doesn't count. Doesn't, doesn't exist. Yeah. Doesn't exist. And there are the poor people there. We send secondhand clothes uh, to sometimes. But there is a, there's a, uh, I have to say that the 90% of the population in this country is black. Right. And, and while white has insulated with a level of perfection because of that elasticity of white power and its ability to adapt and then change a little bit the language, uh, have a friendly smile, but essentially continue to exert this power. That's money power. 
that status power, that's a religious power, that is a like-minded, a close group power of, don't, do you not st dare stand against it? We will reject you and exclude you from our system. So you, meaning a white person who may think to talk to a black person, you'll be, you are threatened with exclusion. Um, yes. So I mean, it happened to me. I was excluded. I was ostracized. And I think they just came to think of me as a crazy American. And I'm guessing you had that same experience because they see the white yes. skin and it's like they start talking about black people like they do this. And, and I'm like, who are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Oh, we're talking about the black people. And I'm like, and they're not what? people. They're not even people. They're commodities. Yeah. Many of the ones that I met had made it okay in their minds. And I've seen this in the Southern United States as well, as if they are below human, kind of in an animal category, without the same feelings, without the same need for food, shelter, any of that. And, and it just blew my mind as it obviously did yours. Well, you know, I, uh, I saw in my parents what I see in white people here. There are enormous similarities. Everything uh, they did, disliked about themselves or could not touch and all the insecurities and the abuse that may have happened to them, it all got projected out as the, the, the enemy image onto Jewish people. Here it's, it's Black people. So when, when, I, when, when you listen to white people here, Uh, the attributes they assign to, to Black people, it is often a reflection of uh, their, their own hateful parts of themselves. And when you think that if you live a life for, for decades or generations where from morning to evening, you fall into this automatic attitude or judgment when you see a person you've never met before, you know nothing about, you just see the skin, color of the skin, negative, Uh, critical, hateful, uh, resentful, the faces change, the mouth corners go down, the whole body of that white person changes into a very deep, negative, resentful energy. Now think about this happening all day long. What happens to the psyche of that person? Gets poison. That poison freezes the heart and freezes the, the self-worth. So you have to perform even more uh, to be somebody Uh, and I see it with young white ones, or they all dress alike, look alike, and reinforce because they live in that homogeneous group. The moment there's a slight uh, variation to it, they get jeopardized. I see a lot of young white people, and not so young ones, in needing mental health support. And I see them in, in uh, rehab centers for alcohol abuse, sexual abuse, drug abuse. I see them at psychiatric, uh, I hear about them in psychiatric offices, left, right, and center, that wellness, that wellness uh, business is an $8 billion business. So there's something happening to the white psyche. It's just so well hidden. And that is not the same with, uh, with black people. You know, I just want to say this, uh, my family is black. And I, I, I have friends in black society. I don't have white friends, one. And in America, too. And, uh, but over and over and over again, look with the widest of eyes as black, at black family members or friends or accomplished professionals, of whom I know many, too. How in spite of all the obstacles, of 
all the put-downs, of all the horrible, resentful, aggressive, angry attitudes excelled, wonderful self-worth and no hate. I, we are not going to sink to that level of that white, white world. Uh, it's their problem, not mine. It blows my mind. That is a yes. Come out of that suffering, out of that standing against that onslaught that uh, we can only, that I hope someday young white ones will see the possibilities of, of what an open heart can mean as beauty, as dignity, as, as we have no idea because we are so frozen and so dead inside. And Elka, in your book, you talk about how, and you know, this is, we've experienced this here in the States as well, especially in the deep South where I grew up, having black women who took care of us, who mothered us, who nurtured us, who fed us, who we played with their children and then all of a sudden, we're supposed to turn our back on that. And that's very. And you wrote so beautifully in your book about the nanny mothers. Thank you, thank you, Lisa. But you have made your experience, and you call it Alma. Am I racist? That really touches my heart. That's beautiful that you you're inquiring that and, and questioning that, and 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 was that you see the humanity of Alma and you go deeper and see the beauty of the humanity of Alma. Every white child just about in South Africa had a black nanny. So that that person would um, sacrifice all child. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. I, w- I was going to say, and these aren't necessarily rich white people because oh. the cost of domestic help in South Africa is so low. We are talking sometimes $10 a day for a full day's worth of work. Yeah, seven days, 24 hours, including Christmas, and no taxi or transport to go home. And then in the home, you can't eat from a plate. You have to go to the side and eat from a plastic plate so you don't contaminate the white people's porcelain or or dishes. So that's still going on today. So, So you have... I don't really even want to focus on the white child. I mean, we need to, because there's a, there's a split. There's a real deep split of um, intrinsically trusting and feeling. And that love from the black, black mother, I believe, is genuine. And you, you, you have that experience with a, a black nanny. It's genuine yes. at that point. No? So this, this dependent child, those are the formative times for, for us to form personalities. That there's a trust from the child into this generous love. And then at some point, a couple of things happen. One is the black mother has to give up her Christmas. Then she gets uh, terribly mistreated in the family by the mother, by the father, or by even older children. So there is a, a sadness also in her. And a real sadness that she has to sacrifice time with her own children and worries about them. And that sits in her too. And I'm wondering if the white child also gets this. Then the white white child, think of the mother, what a horrible, unmothering person she is, that the, the, the nanny has that little vulnerable being in her arms, from, from the arms to the tummy, it's a beautiful, and then from here up to the eyes and the head, 
the mother gives the hostile look at the black nanny, um, is critical about how she's moved the flower vase a little bit too far to the left, why she came 50 minutes late. No, no compassion that the nanny's child was sick. And on and on and on. So there is this negative energy coming here. The nanny holds the child, feels the sadness, feels the love, feels the mix of it. And that child in the middle is just like this. It goes like in tipsy-turvy, what on earth, which emotions are real? That's a great way to put it because the effect isn't just that the Black person is receiving the negativity. It's that this little baby is experiencing the negativity from its biological mother and yet the love from its Black mother. And the sadness of the Black mother, too. Oh, yes. The worry yes. And the, the, the deep worry about, and my child, here I am on Christmas with this child, or Easter, or in the middle of the night, or on Sunday. There's, there's no end to that. And my child, my child has the flu. My child is sick. When will I see my child is growing? I haven't spent time with my child. That's such an incredible sacrifice and sadness. And it is nowhere acknowledged. So when you think of it, we as white mothers or children, we, we, that's where the dehumanization starts within us. We get cold to those beautiful, delicate feelings of nurturing. You know? It becomes a practicality and, and, and it's a horrible so I think we white people, we white people have really humanized ourselves and don't even know it. Well, I think we don't want to get disheartened because there is hope and there is more than we can do beyond just talking. But that's another podcast for another day. We've been talking to Elka Geising about her book, Can We Talk, Will I Listen? A Journey Towards the Healing Power of Dialogue, where she discusses her life as a child in Germany and growing up with parents who were in the Nazi regime and her healing from that, facing what that was like, then moving to South Africa and beginning a dialogue, telling her story and then opening up the discussion about apartheid and the oppression of Black people in South Africa. We are going to continue this conversation in the next podcast. And what we'll do is we'll talk about what can we do beyond just dialogue? Because I think that is important, but there have to be next steps. So Elka Geising will join us again. My name is Lisa Smith Henderson. I am your host of Alma Am I Racist, the podcast. If you want to know more, you can go to almaamiracist.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.